January 8th, first Sunday in a couple weeks. That's not a holiday, so I guess that's good. Uh, welcome to the, the fun part of the year. <laughs> what? Is it somebody's birthday? Oh, a whistle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Weymouth. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. Uh, glad to see you all with us once again. Uh, if, if you haven't been here before, we're happy you're here. Uh, you can check out our bulletin, our website, weymouthchurch.com, for different announcements, different uh, information about our church. Uh, as we get started this morning, just a couple things to highlight for you to be thinking about, a few announcements. Uh, we have uh, our annual meeting coming up at the end of the month, January 29th. This will be a time after the service for uh, anyone to attend, get an update on where things have been at the church the past year. Uh, we'll also be voting on the budget for the year, voting on new elders. So if you're a member, we encourage you to be a part of that after the service on the 29th. But if you're not a member, you're welcome to come and, and see and hear and, and uh, learn what's going on with that. So that's happening August 29th, uh, uh, congregational meeting. and Or not August, when I say August, uh, <laughs> January 29th. I'm thinking ahead, so one of the other announcements. Um, uh, January 29th, and then the following month, February 17th, we are having a all-nighter for our youth ministry for Weymouth students, so uh, all 6th through 12th graders are invited to come. We're going to uh, start off uh, at uh, 6 p.m., we're going to go till 8 a.m. that morning. It's going to be an all-nighter, so it'll be fun and games. We're actually going to meet at the Foundry uh, here in Medina at 6, play some games together, and then we'll drive over here to the church for the rest of the night to uh, do some devotionals, play some games, hang out, um, pull fun pranks on each other, hopefully. Um, uh, but that'll be a fun time on February 17th. So you can go to our website, sign up for that, or you can also sign up, register in the Church Center app. That's February 17th. Um, and then we've put out a date August 1st through, 1st through 5th for our soccer camp next summer for uh, kids ages 6 to 14. It's also going to be a great time to uh, to serve and reach out to our community that way. So mark that on your calendars, August 1st through 5th. That's why I had August on the brain. Um, that's our soccer camp next summer. Two other things to note, uh, as we sent an email about this on Friday, uh, but as we think about prayer for the new year, we're launching two new uh, prayer groups. Uh, one is going to meet on the first Sunday of each month, and that is going to be our evangelism prayer group. That's going to meet at 9 o'clock Sundays in the children's church room. Uh, and that's going to be an opportunity just to come together, pray for specific people we're praying to come to know Christ, pray for specific opportunities uh, in our community to share the gospel. So that's going to be the first Sunday of each month at 9, starting in February. And then the last Sunday of each month at 9, in that same room, we're going to be having a uh, parent prayer group. And this is a group for anybody who parents in any way, for parents of young children, parents of teenagers, parents of older children, adult children, parents of foster children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, wards of the state, maybe. Um, it's like, yeah. uh, it's like Batman and Robin. Robin was his ward. I don't know. Um, there you go. Yeah, a few, few chuckles. I like it. Um, yeah, so, or if you're somebody who is hoping to be a parent someday or, or struggling with, with having children, somebody who's grieving the loss uh, of a child, that, that is a prayer group for you as well. Anyone who has played that role of parent in some way, we want to take time once a month to gather together, pray for our kids, but also pray for our children's ministry, our youth ministry, for opportunities to reach out to kids and families in the community. So I wanted to highlight those things here at the front just so you're aware of things happening, launching, since we're starting a new year, new things are happening. Uh, if you have any questions about that, you can come talk to me or you can check out the bulletin or our church website. Uh, but as we get started in worship this morning, let's take a few moments uh, to calm our minds Calm our hearts in silent prayer before the Lord. David declares in Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And gracious God, we praise you this morning, for you are the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. You are worthy of all glory and praise. So remind us again as we uh, 
launch into this new year as we come off the Christmas season, remind us of the joyful news that uh, in Christ you have uh, launched your kingdom into the world, that your saving rule, your saving restoration has been established, has been entrenched and carried out in the person and work of your Son, our Savior. So help us to praise you this morning as our King, as our Lord, as the one who can do for us more than we could ever ask or imagine, who can bring us forgiveness of sins, bring us true life and security and hope. Help us to praise you in response to who you are, the King of glory, and in response to all you've done for us in your Son, in your grace, in your mercy. Pour out your Spirit upon us and help us to to sing with full hearts and joy, to speak uh, words of truth to you and to one another. And humble us and help us to sit under your word, to be receptive to your message, to produce fruit in response to what you are applying in our hearts by your spirit through your word. Lord, help us now as we praise you, as we learn from you, as we hear your word this morning. And unite us together in Christ with joy, with humility, with grace, and with peace. And help us to go from here as people of peace, proclaiming the peace of God, the peace with God, that is available in Christ for all who believe. Help us now, Lord, in your glory and in your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing together.
Please be seated. Amen. Well, it's that time again. We're going to invite any kids uh, up to the front. Any kids up who want to come, we're going to continue on in our uh, catechism for the new year. We're not starting over because it's a new year. Don't worry. We're going to keep on going here. Uh, this week we are on question number 18. But just to refresh our memories, what is a catechism? Does anybody remember what a catechism is? Yeah, question, a series of questions and answers that uh, teach us about what we believe uh, as Christians, about what we believe as people who follow Jesus, who uh, study the Bible, who believe that it's the Word of God. So before we get to our question this morning, uh, what I want to ask you guys, and I don't, I don't want to hear any names specifically, I don't want to hear about any people specifically, right? But raise your hand if you've ever had a friend or a sibling who's done something wrong but they didn't get in trouble for it. Imagine if that's ever happened. Yeah? Yeah? Right? Right? That's happened. Don't say names. Don't tell me about anybody specific. Don't call anybody out on the internet here, right? Um, okay. Now, how did you feel when that happened? If you saw a friend or a sibling that did something wrong but got away with it, they didn't get in trouble, how did that make you feel? Upset. Upset? Yeah. Why did it make you feel upset? Yeah, right? It makes you upset. They didn't get uh, what was right. Any, anybody else feel anything differently when that happened? Upset? What did you say? Frustrated. Frustrated? Right. Why did you feel frustrated? Because I think that this has to be, has got to be blotted out, and it's really frustrating. Yeah, right? It's frustrating. It's unfair sometimes if somebody has done something wrong, but there's no consequences, because it makes us feel like, oh, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not... Um, what we would call just, right? Justice is when people, uh, when the balances, when the scales are balanced or when things, you know, if somebody does something wrong or breaks something, they get in trouble or they pay for it, right? There should be justice. Things should have a balance. And so when people or somebody gets away with something, even though they did something wrong, it can be really frustrating because it can feel unfair. It can feel unjust. And what the Bible teaches us is that sense that all of us have, right, that feeling inside of us that we all have of justice, of wanting things to be made right, of wanting somebody who does something wrong um, to receive justice or, or judgment or the, the, the punishment that they deserve or to have to pay the, the price or the debt that they owe for breaking something, that comes from the fact, the Bible tells us, that we were created by God. We were created in God's image, and God is a just God. God is a just God. And what that means is that God is a God who doesn't like sin. He hates evil. He hates sin. He hates rebellion. He wants his world to be good and perfect. And so when evil things happen, when bad things happen, God is a God who is going to take care of it. He's going to bring, the Bible says, ultimately his judgment, his justice against those who do evil. And so that brings us to our, our catechism question this morning. And hopefully it'll appear up on the screen here. Yeah, catechism question number 18. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? And the answer is no. God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. And so where we left off in the catechism at the end of the last year was we were talking about sin and idolatry and the fact that all of us break God's commands. We rebel against him. We do the things he doesn't want us to do. And this, this question tells us that because we do those things, God's not going to let our disobedience, our sin, go unpunished. And that can be scary, and that can be, uh, sound kind of scary to us because it means, oh, wow, I deserve to be punished. But the reason God does that is because he's just, because he's fair, because he has to punish evil. And that's a really, really good thing, because if we lived in a world without justice, where evil didn't get punished, then that would be crazy, right? You could come and take my car, and I could break into your house and take your Xbox and have no consequences. Really bad things could happen, right? So it's good that God is a God of justice, that God is a God who is good, who will punish evil, who is holy, who can't stand bad things and evil. But the problem is, is that we have evil inside of us. We have sin inside of us. And so because God is a good, just God, he has to punish sin. He can't let our sin and our rebellion go unanswered, unpunished. And so part of the message of Christianity is, is scary news. It's bad news. It's good news that God is just, but it's bad news that we're not good. We're not just. We're sinners. We deserve to be punished. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve to be separated from him. We deserve to go to hell. 
And that's scary, but that news should wake us up and make us think, okay, how can I be made right with a God who is good and justice? How can I find forgiveness for our sins? And God sent his son, Jesus, to make a way for forgiveness, to make that way for us to be both uh, forgiven for our sins and for God to be just, because on the cross, what Jesus did is he took the punishment, he took the justice, he took the blame, he took the, the judgment of God for our sins in our place as our substitute. And so because Jesus did that, God can forgive us for our sins while still being just in punishing sin. And that's a core idea at the heart of what we believe as Christians, that God won't let our sin go unpunished, but because he loves us, he sent his son to be punished for our sins in our place. That God is good and just, but he's also gracious. He's also merciful. He's also forgiving. And so we thank him, we praise him, we trust him. And we know that the only way for us to find forgiveness, to be freed from the judgment we deserve, is to trust in Jesus who took that judgment on himself. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Right? Yeah, it makes sense? All right, well, let's pray. Let's thank God, and then we'll, we'll move on to, to what's next here. Well, God, thank you for uh, this, this reminder and how it uh, is challenging because it reminds us that we are sinners who deserve your judgment but it is also hopeful because it reminds us that you sent your son to take that judgment in our place uh, to bring us forgiveness. We thank you that you are a good God, that you are a just God, and that you have been made a way for us to receive your grace and mercy, to receive forgiveness in Jesus through faith. So help us to trust him, to live for him, to turn away from sin, and to follow and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, we're going to move on to Children's Church now. So if you're going to Children's Church, you can uh, go along with Mr. and Mrs. Pixton, follow behind them, and then uh, the rest of us will stand and continue to sing together. Oh 
Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Book of Mark, chapter 4. We're making progress here in our series through Mark's Gospel. Mark, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 together this morning. And as you turn there, just a quick announcement that I forgot to mention at the start of the service. Our Sam's, our Sam's luncheon, our Senior Adult Ministries luncheon, is canceled for this Thursday. So uh, that won't be happening uh, this month. Uh, so if you're planning on attending that, please make note that it is canceled for this week. So then here we are in Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 20. Follow along as I read. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very, a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other, seeds, other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. This is the word of God. And gracious Father, as we come to this word now, Lord, we humbly uh, submit ourselves to you because uh, all hearts are in your hands, all events are at your disposal. So we ask that you'll set the seal of your almighty will upon the ministry of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you were to go into my office here at the church, uh, you'd see a painting hanging on a wall, uh, and this painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. I think we have a slide of it. Yep, there we go. So this is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. It's one of my favorite paintings. It's hanging on my office wall, and uh, what this painting depicts, it depicts uh, the parable of the prodigal son, one of Jesus' most famous parables uh, from Luke chapter 15. And the reason this is hanging in my office is because this parable in particular, when I was a young Christian, had a, a huge impact on me personally. And it had a huge impact on it because as I uh, read uh, Luke 15 and studied it with some people, I came to see myself not only in the younger brother, the prodigal, who goes away and squanders his inheritance uh, and returns to his father humbled, uh, seeking his mercy, but I also came to see myself in the older brother, the one that Rembrandt depicts on the side there, half in shadow, standing far apart from his uh, father and his younger brother, uh, sitting in judgment over his younger sibling. I was challenged by this parable because it showed me that not only do I identify in my sin with the younger brother who runs away, but also with the older brother who's full of pride and judgment uh, who's seeking his own salvation and his own uh, inheritance, his own blessing through his works. 
came to see that my sin manifested not just in the bad things I do, but also in the good things I do for selfish and sinful reasons. And I came to see that by reading this parable. And just as a side note, if you're interested in, in diving deeper into a parable like Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, two books to recommend. One, uh, Tim Keller's Prodigal God. It's one of my favorite books. And then also the author Henry Nowen has a book uh, called uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, where he kind of looks through this uh, painting and, and does some cool things uh, just reflectively uh, from that, from Luke 15. So don't say I don't ever give you guys book recommendations because I, I do. Sometimes I do too much. So tell me to stop if it's just, if you don't have time to read all these books. But um, Luke 15, this parable had a profound impact on me in my own faith as a young Christian. And that's the beautiful thing about parables is the parables in Scripture, which are stories that have a point or images that are meant to teach us a lesson. The beautiful thing about the parables in Scripture is that they communicate truth to us in a way that uh, doesn't just get in our heads, it gets into our hearts. The parables, they communicate God's truth to us in imaginative, challenging, surprising ways that help God's truth take root in our hearts uh, through images, through stories, in ways that surprise us, in ways that are unexpected. We want to see that this morning because we are coming to a section here in Mark that uh, contains a series of parables. In Mark chapter 4, we have one of the longest uh, stretches of Mark's recordings of Jesus' actual words and teachings. And this section of Jesus' teaching all contains uh, several different parables of Jesus. And the first of these parables that we have in uh, verses 1 through 20 is one of the most important parables in the entire Bible, what has come to be known as the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. In this parable, it's centrally important, not just in Mark's gospel, not just in chapter 4, this parable of the sower is centrally important for helping us understand how parables work, how they function in the entire New Testament. This parable, the parable of the sword, has something to teach us not just about the truth that it proclaims, but also about how parables themselves function and how Jesus used parables to try and get the truth into our hearts. And so in these verses this morning, what we'll see, the big idea we're going to look at this morning, is that, par that Jesus proclaimed truth in parables because parables provoke productive hearing. Parables provoke productive hearing. I promise I did not try to make that a tongue twister on purpose, but try saying that 10 times fast. Hopefully it helps you remember that parables provoke productive hearing. That is their purpose. That is their function. That is how Jesus uses them in Mark and in the New Testament. When we come to this idea that parables provoke productive hearing, we come to it by making two observations about this parable, the parable of the sower. Two observations. First, that this is a parable about hearing. It's a parable about hearing. Secondly, this is a parable about parables. It's a parable about parables. So we'll see what that means. First, this is a parable about hearing. If you've ever had uh, to go get a hearing test done, we had to do this when I was a kid in school. Sometimes you go to the nurse and she puts these headphones on you and then uh, every once in a while you hear a beep on one side of your head or the other. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. But you go get a, a hearing test done and the whole point of it is you listen for these beeps and you tell the nurse or the doctor uh, when you hear the beep and they record it and write it down and they keep track of, of how well you heard the beeps, how, how good a job you did hearing all the different noises you're supposed to hear. So this is a hearing test. It's meant to measure, it's meant to uh, tell how good your hearing is, right? Well, the parable of the sower functions like a spiritual hearing test. The parable of the sower is meant uh, to show us how we are hearing. As Jesus uses this parable, as he tells it, he's illustrating the different ways that people hear and respond to the proclamation of God's word. And Mark, he clues us into this idea by his repeated use of the Greek word for hear in this parable. And the first use of this Greek word for hear is in verse 9, where Jesus, he begins his parable by saying, listen. Listen. This word for listen in Greek is the same word for hear. The same word that he uses throughout the, the rest of the text here. It, his parable begins with a call to listen, call to hear. 
And then Jesus ends his parable by declaring, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, that's the same Greek word for the word listen with which he starts the parable. So Jesus, what he's doing here in Mark 4, he's opening and closing this parable with a call to attentive listening, with a call to hear, to truly hear what Jesus is saying. And so then what exactly is Jesus saying in this parable? Well, let's take a look at it and, and run through it briefly here. Jesus, he tells of a sower, a farmer, who's going and scattering seeds. And some seed, it falls along a path where it's devoured by birds. Other seed falls among rocky soil where the, the soil was shallow and underneath was a layer of, of rock so that the seed sprouts up quickly. But then because it has no depth of root, when the sun hits it, when the heat hits it, it withers away. It doesn't last. Then thirdly, there's seed that falls among the thorns, and it's choked out by the thorns, and they keep it from producing fruit. They keep it from sprouting up and flourishing. And then finally, there's a fourth seed, seed that falls on good soil, on receptive soil, on fruitful soil, where it sprouts up, where it flourishes, where it produces a, a fruit a 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So Jesus gives us this parable of the sower and the, different, and the seed being sown and the different soils. And there's a lot of different ways that we can come at a parable like this. We can talk about and focus in on the sower. We can focus in on the, the seed and what the seed represents. We can focus in on the different types of soils. We can get in the weeds of all the details of uh, first century farming. That pun was intended, so get in the weeds, right? That was, yeah, thank you, Elaine. Um, <laughs> That was a spur of the moment one, and I'm not happy about it. Um, yeah, right? We can, we can focus on how did first century farming work and irrigation, and would it have made sense to cast seed in this way? But I think that the point of this parable is not to get caught up in all those little details, because we want to keep our focus on the repeated emphasis here on hearing. This idea of hearing is the theme that comes up again and again throughout the text, and it keeps us from chasing too many rabbit trails about what this represents or what that represents. It helps us see the main emphasis of the text, which is on how different people hear and respond to the message of Jesus. And this would have been an important question because as one commentator puts it, where we find the parable of the sower here in Mark 4 is we find this parable coming after two scenes of very different responses to Jesus. Previously in chapter 3, we looked at how Jesus' family heard about his ministry and thought he was crazy, so they came to restrain him. And then Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders from Jerusalem, they came and accused Jesus of, of being possessed by a demon. So if you're one of Jesus' followers during this time in his ministry, somebody who's heard the message of Jesus, who's responded to it, has come to see Jesus as the Messiah who is following him as such, and yet you see these people not accepting that message. You see them rejecting it. You see them saying Jesus is crazy or saying Jesus is evil. The question would be, well, why are there these different responses to Jesus? Why are people uh, responding to Jesus in this way? Why is there hostility or rejection of Jesus' message? And so we have here the parable of the sower in which Jesus presents for us, he illustrates for us the sobering picture the fact that there are a variety of ways that people respond to the message of Christ. And most of these responses aren't good. Most of these responses aren't productive. Most people who hear the message of Jesus, they don't respond to it in a positive or a productive way. This is a sobering reality. And Jesus, he makes this clear starting in verse 14. Because after giving the parable itself, Mark, he flashes forward to a later scene in the narrative where Jesus' followers and his 12 disciples, they approach Jesus and ask him to explain the parables. And Jesus makes a few general comments about parables, which we'll get to in a moment. But then he goes on to explain this specific parable, the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. And what he says is that... Um, he tells us that the seed that is sown is the word. He goes through each element of the parable and explains it. He starts with the sower who sows the seed, and he says that the seed is the word. It is the proclamation of God's truth. And so far in Mark, the main proclamation we've seen is in Mark 1.15, 
where Jesus declares that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. This is the proclamation, the word, the message that Jesus has been going around Galilee proclaiming. That in himself, the kingdom of God, God's saving rule and restoration is breaking into history. That people who turn away from their sins, who repent, who come to a settled confidence in Christ, who have faith. That if people repent and believe this good news about Jesus, that they too can be brought into this kingdom. They too can go from being lost and dead sinners to children of God through faith in Christ. This is the message that Jesus is proclaiming. This is the word that he is sowing. But not everybody hears this proclamation and responds with repentance and faith. And Jesus makes this clear by describing for us these different seeds, these different soils, and how people uh, respond to the word that is sown. So each of these different soils represents a different way that people hear and respond to the word of God, the message of the gospel. Jesus says that the seed that is sown along the path and snatched away by birds, that represents those who who hear the word, who hear the gospel, but Satan immediately snatches it out of their minds. He immediately takes it away so they don't truly hear it, they don't truly respond to it. And then the seed that is sown along the rocky soil, it represents those who hear the message of the gospel, who hear the word and receive it with joy and respond to it with excitement, with passion, but haven't really truly responded with a depth of repentance and faith, who have responded in a shallow way, have no real roots in Christ, and so when the heat of life comes in, their faith withers away. It disappears. And then thirdly, the seed that it falls among the thorn, it represents those who hear the word of the gospel, but are so consumed with the cares and the worries of this world or consumed with pursuing deceitful idols like wealth or power or other things, these earthly concerns dominate their minds and their hearts to the point where it chokes out, it pushes out the message of the gospel. And then finally, the seed on the good soil, Jesus says, it represents those who hear the message of Christ, who are receptive to it and hear it in a way that is productive, in a way that leads to fruit being produced. These are those who respond to Christ's proclamation with repentance and faith. Who respond to the word and the the word, the seed planted, it produces fruit in them to sometimes an astonishing degree. As we see these diversity of responses represented in these soils, the thing that they all have in common is that in each case, in each picture, there is someone who hears the word. Each picture starts with hearing the word, and then differentiates with how that person responds to what they have heard. And three out of the four types of hearing here, in Jesus' picture, three out of the four types of hearing are impotent. They are unproductive. They don't produce the fruit of true hearing, of repentance and faith. And so when we read this parable, the question we should ask is, how's my hearing? How's my hearing? This is a hearing test. Because remember, Jesus begins his parable with a call to listen. He ends it with a declaration that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the challenge we're faced with with when we read this parable, the question we're provoked with is how am I hearing the word of God? How am I responding to the gospel proclamation? How have I received the, the good news of God's saving rule and restoration in Christ? Because maybe some of you, some of us have been coming to church for years. But every week, every Sunday, the message goes in one ear and out the other. You hear it, but it it just gets snatched away. It doesn't land. It doesn't take root. It doesn't go anywhere. It goes away. Or maybe you've uh, became a Christian at one point or professed faith in Christ. Or maybe you started out really excited and passionate about the gospel about the message, but then maybe over time it kind of faded away. That excitement withered away in the face of life's challenges or hardships or questions. Maybe you've experienced a disillusionment about the message. Maybe you're barely hanging on. Or maybe you've you've heard the word, you've heard it on Sundays, maybe you read it during the week, you read the Bible, you study it, and yet the cares of this world, 
what you read about in the news, what you see on social media, the things that you're striving for in your job, money, power, success, acclaim, all these, seem, all these things loom so much larger, larger in your mind and your heart. They take pride of place in your heart over the message of the gospel to the, po- to the point where the message of the gospel has been pushed out. It's no longer a priority. It's no longer a passion. It's no longer central to who you are and how you live and how you think. And the answer to each of these struggles, wherever we are, wherever we're coming from, if these are things we struggle with, the answer is not just to say, oh, I better work harder to become a better type of soil, right? I better work on my shallowness. I better deal with my social media intake. I better try and uh, not care about these, these issues in life so much. The answer is not just to work harder to make ourselves into a better type of soil. The, the first step in response to this parable is not to work harder. The first step is to turn our attention again to the word that is sown, to try and see it in a new way, to come before it not with a sense of routine or indifference, but to come to this word with a sense of expectation, to come to it humbly, curiously, ready to be shocked and surprised by this word, filled with wonder that God would even sow his word in our midst, that even, even, he would even give lost sinners like you and me his revelation. Do we approach the word of God that way? Do we approach it expectantly, curiously, ready to ask questions about it, ready to be challenged by it, ready to take it for what it is and take God's word as he has given it to us? Are we ready to approach it that way? Are we indifferent to it? Are we hostile to it? Are we disillusioned with it? The point of this parable is to shake us up and get us to ask these questions. Because naturally, our hearts are hardened by sin. Our ears are stopped up with indifference and with idolatry. And so in order to break through that, we need to see how God's word actually cuts through all of our hardness, all of our indifference, how it surprises us, how it gets at not just our ears, but our hearts in unexpected ways. And so the parables of Jesus are a great help to us because in the face of hard hearts and deaf ears, parables are designed to provoke productive hearing. And the parable of the sower teaches us this because it's not just a parable about hearing, it's also a parable about parables. It's a parable about parables. When you were in school, I don't know if you ever had a time where you, you cared enough or, or hung around an, or, or cared enough about a subject or an issue to hang around after class to ask your teacher for more help. I remember when I was in high school, I took a lot of art classes and I would, while other kids were off, you know, practicing football, practicing baseball, I would be in the art room after school, you know, working on art projects, working with my teacher to learn how to airbrush or use Photoshop or do different things because I was intensely interested in this topic. I wanted to learn more about uh, the skills I needed or the ways I could approach it. And what we see in uh, verses 11 or verses 10 through 12 is the disciples doing something similar here. They come to Jesus, their teacher, after class because they are invested in what he is saying and they want to learn more about it. They want him to explain the parables to him. Mark tells us that the disciples, the twelve and others who were around Jesus, they come to him at a later time after hearing this parable of the sower, and they come to him and ask him to explain to them the parables. And Jesus responds to them, not just by addressing this particular parable, but by talking about parables in general. He says in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And then in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And he says, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And here we should pause and see that this is a really shocking statement by Jesus. The way he quotes Isaiah, the way he talks about the parables, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is saying that he tells parables, that he teaches in this way, in order to keep people from hearing, in order to keep people from understanding, in order to keep people from turning and finding forgiveness. 
That's how it sounds to us at first, but here we have to do the hard work before we jump into conclusions. We have to do the hard work of really studying uh, the Bible. And yes, studying the Bible can be hard work sometimes. And that's actually a really good thing. And so we have to do the hard work of looking at the Bible, looking at this passage, and trying to see, okay, what is Jesus really doing here? What is he saying about parables? What is he saying in his quotation of Isaiah? And so what we want to do is we want to recognize that Jesus is doing something intentional here, the way he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And it's intentional how Mark has structured this text in the fact that this quote from Isaiah is actually in the center of the text between the parable itself and the explanation of the parables. One uh, commentary I read actually said that you could see uh, the parable of the sower as a commentary from Jesus on Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, a way of explaining what he's saying, what Isaiah said in the Old Testament, and now Jesus is explaining here in the New Testament. So when you see that, when you see in the New Testament especially a quote from the Old Testament, it's important to follow that line, to see where it goes, to see what it has to say, what kind of context it creates for our reading of the New Testament. So let's follow Jesus then to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament. Because what's happening in Isaiah 6 is the central character, Isaiah, he was a prophet. He was a man who was called to proclaim God's truth to God's people. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we have a particularly important part, a particularly important chapter in Isaiah, where Isaiah the prophet, he's given a vision of God, and then he's called and commissioned by God to go and preach to Israel, to go and preach to God's people. And in verses 9 through 10 of Isaiah 6, God says to Isaiah, he tells him what to say, he says, go and say this to, the, to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So God, he calls Isaiah to go and preach to his people in order to make their hearts dull and heavy, in order to blind them, lest they turn and be healed. Now, why would God tell Isaiah to do this? Why would he send him to preach in this way? Well, in the context of Isaiah, what is happening is God is calling Isaiah to go and preach to his people that God's judgment is coming. God sends Isaiah to the people to tell them that, hey, because of your idolatry, because of your sin, because of your rebellion, God's judgment is coming. God is going to send other nations who are going to conquer you and exile you and oppress you. So God sends Isaiah to go and wake his people up to tell them that this is happening. And Isaiah's preaching, it would have a hardening effect because for many people in Israel, it would reveal his preaching and their response to it would reveal how hard their hearts already were towards God. And then his preaching would further uh, dull their hearts, dull their ears to the message of God. But even in this proclamation, it contains a, a somewhat ironic reminder that if the God's people, if they turned back to God, he would heal them. When we come to this passage in Isaiah, um, we have to realize that it's not that God wanted his people to not be healed. It's not that God wanted Isaiah to go and preach to them in order to keep them from being healed. But Isaiah's prophesying, it was meant to proclaim and reveal that God's judgment would be just that these people were worthy of judgment because they had turned away from God, the source of healing, and they had turned to other idols. They had turned to destruction. And so we see that prophecy in the Old Testament, it often worked in complicated, surprising, ironic ways in order to shock people, in order to wake God's people up. Even his judgment in Isaiah, his exile of Israel, was meant to wake them up to their sin to show them how they had turned away from God, to lead them to a point to discipline them and lead them to turn back to God. And so when we read our Bibles, when we read prophetic literature like Isaiah, we are reading literature that can sometimes be complicated and complex and hard to understand because the prophets were speaking in a mode, in a way that was meant to get under people's skin, 
meant to uh, surprise them, meant to wake them up. And so sometimes the prophets use irony, they use sarcasm, they use imagery, they use shock and awe and surprise to get people to wake up to their sin or to get people to wake up to the fact that God could heal them. That's how prophecy works as a genre in the Old Testament. And by quoting Isaiah 6 and Mark 4, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that his parables function in a similar way. As one commentator put it, when Jesus preaches in parables, he is speaking prophetically. He is painting with a prophetic brush. He is living at his office as the ultimate prophet, the greater Isaiah. And just as Isaiah's preaching was meant to shock and surprise people into hearing God's word, so too Jesus' parables were designed to proclaim truth in a way that provoked productive hearing, that shocked and surprised people, that got under people's skin in unexpected ways. And so this is why Jesus' parables, they often include some sort of shocking or unexpected element to them, why their message sometimes seems hidden or hard to grasp. Because in teaching through parables, Jesus, he's not just trying to drill information into our brains. He's trying to root truth into our hearts. He's using irony or surprise or symbolism to get underneath our dullness, to cut around our hardness, to defibrillate our hearts into a response. And so not everyone who hears the parables are going to get it, because not everyone's hearts are eager or receptive to the message that Jesus is bringing, the meaning of his parables. And so the parables, they have a revealing element. They reveal hearts that are receptive to God's word and hearts that are hardened to God's word. And that revealing element is supposed to do something to us. It's supposed to wake us up and challenge us in some way. And so the parable of the sower, it functions then as a picture, as a parable about parables. Because the parable of the sower illustrates this exact phenomenon, how people respond to the word of God, how they hear it. Jesus says in verse 13, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? See, for Jesus, the parable of the sower was the Rosetta Stone of all other parables. It was the key, it was the instruction manual for how parables worked, how they functioned. The sowing of the seed, it led to four different responses, and only one of those responses was productive. Is in a similar way, when Jesus taught through parables, he would be met by many with uh, indifference or confusion or even hostility. But with a few people, his parables would be met with a desire to go deeper, to learn more, to produce fruit. And we see this in the narrative of Mark 4. We see that in the fact that Jesus' followers, they come back later and ask him about the parables. Mark tells us in verse 1 that he gave this parable, he taught it to a large crowd beside the sea. And yet it's only a small group of Jesus' followers who come back later and ask him to explain the parable. And they do this because their hearts were receptive to God's word, because something in the parable provoked in them a desire to learn more. And so they come to Jesus, their teacher, and they want to learn more about what the parable means and why he teaches in parables. Their soil was prepared for growth. See, by telling this parable, Jesus, he provoked a desire to hear rightly in his disciples. He provoked a desire to hear rightly. And the question for us is, does this parable provoke the same desire to hear rightly in us? Does reading this parable provoke in us a desire to better understand, to better study, to better hear the word of God? To respond rightly to it, to hear it rightly, to listen to it, to have ears to hear. When we hear the word preached, when we study it on our own, when we listen to Jesus' message, are our hearts and minds gripped with the desire to learn more, to go deeper? Does his word produce in us the fruit of repentance and faith? And if not, why not? That's the question that we're meant to see from this text. If What is keeping us from truly hearing God's word? What is making us uh, indifferent towards the gospel? 
What has caused us to be disillusioned with his message? Why is it that sometimes the cares and the desires of life seem so much bigger than the truth of God's word? See, this parable, it's meant to shake us up. It's meant to wake us up, to make us ask these questions about how we're hearing the word, how we're responding to the word. It's meant to test our hearing. And my prayer is that if it does shake you up, if you do read this parable, if you are challenged with how you're hearing the word of God, my hope is that you'll follow the example of the disciples and go to Jesus. Go to Jesus, the greater prophet. Go to Jesus, the great physician, to have your hearing truly restored. Because it's in Jesus, it's in Jesus that we truly understand the word of God. It's in Jesus that the entire picture of God's word comes together. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. He's the perfect revelation of God to us. And so it's by coming to Jesus, seeing who he is, hearing his word, that we come to make sense of how the Old Testament works, how the New Testament works. We come to make sense of how the Bible fits together. We come to make sense of what the message of the gospel actually is. And so the question is, how is your hearing? How are you responding to the word you are hearing? Does a parable like this provoke in you a desire to learn more, to go deeper? And if it does, I would invite you, come to Jesus, come to his word, come to it curiously and expectantly and humbly. Come to it and begin to see how his word reveals where we are, how it cuts into us, how it roots down into our hearts, how it produces fruits in us, fruit in us, how it provokes productive hearing. Because the word is not just meant to be something you come and hear on a Sunday morning. It's not meant to be something that you give a part of your life to. These are the words of life. These are the words of God. This is the proclamation, the revelation from God himself. So how are you hearing it? How is it producing fruit in you? How are you responding to it? Your indifference, your disillusionment, your cares and desires, they don't have to keep you from hearing his word. Open it up. Read it for yourself. Be ready for it to shock and surprise you. Ask questions of the Bible. I promise you, it can handle it. Seek out someone else to read the Bible with, to grow in your understanding of it. And always when you come to Scripture, seek Jesus. Seek the great physician, the one who is the greater Isaiah, who can explain the parables, who is the center of God's revelation. Seek him, come to his word, and see how it can produce fruit in your life. See how it can lead you to repentance and faith. So let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we uh, are humbled as we think about how you've revealed yourself to us, how you've made known who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, how you've given us this pronouncement, this proclamation of your word, that lost sinners can be brought into your kingdom through repentance and faith in Christ. So Lord, heal our hearing. Help us to hear your word rightly, Lord. Help it not to be snatched away from us. Help it not to be uh, shallow and temporary. Help it not to be choked out by the cares of life and the concerns of the other idols that we chase, Lord. Lord, help us to hear your word receptively, productively. Provoke in us, provoke in our hearts productive hearing of your word that we may come to see more clearly our Savior and our Lord. Produce fruit in us from your word by your spirit, not through our own efforts, but through uh, the message that you have proclaimed in and through your Son, in his word. Lord, humble us as we read it. Help us to understand it. Help us to share it with others that more seed may be planted and more growth may happen for your kingdom and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we'll finish our time together uh, by standing and singing one more song.
Amen. Well, even the name Emmanuel reminds us of uh, how Christ is the Son of God, come to dwell with us, how he is the Word from the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we go, uh, let's just uh, continue standing for a word of benediction as we go together in the grace and peace of Christ. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Go in peace.